Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. So I'm reading today from uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is in the NIV version. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. forgot everything that happened in the last like seven days ago. Uh, We're in a series called Life on Purpose, uh, which is about really as we enter in a new year, um, trying to, we said the hope was that we would arrive at the end of um, 2019, not just having done some stuff, but having become more of the person that we were meant to be. Now, maybe you're like, yeah, that sounds great. I would love to become more of the person I was meant to be. Uh, I have this feeling in me. I don't just want to do some stuff. I want to become someone. I, want, I don't just want to stay the same, Dave said last week, right? We have more hopes for ourselves than that, even in our most uh, uh, doubtful uh, times. Um, and so we said, hey, this, to, to become someone is actually to understand, okay, so when, what is my purpose in life? What is a vision or a picture for who I'm meant to be? And then understand what I do in light of, well, who, who am I meant to be? The scary part is, though, the, the opposite of, uh, you know, if we were to understand this, is not having no purpose, because we all actually have purposes that we're living for, whether we're aware of it or not. If I could sort of just, you know, thin it down, and maybe at the risk of oversimplification, say, really what we're looking for is happiness and security, right? We want that experience of, like, whatever you want to call happiness, however that works, that personal satisfaction, and then that sense of security and stability, both in the present time and, and then in the future, and all that that means for us, whether it's health and our finances and those kinds of things. Now, I'm not being critical. I think that's just human nature. We're saying, well, I'm not, like, I can't help it. That's just what I, <laughs> I, I crave. I look for happiness, the pursuit of happiness, right? Um, and, and this sense of wanting to feel stable and secure both now and in the future. That's not a bad thing, is it? And no, I think that's just human nature. But if you think about our culture that we live in, what's underneath those purposes that we're pursuing of happiness and security? If I could summarize it, probably these four things. Wealth, power, fame, beauty. Now, you look at those words and go, ooh, it looks a bit ugly. Like, 
I, I don't think I'll admit to all four of those, <laughs> at least not out loud, right? Wealth, power, fame, beauty. But if you think about it, pretty much everything about our lives and how our world is oriented is towards those four things. Those things we believe, if I can get those, I will have happiness and I will have security. I mean, people say, well, I, I don't want to be wealthy, you know. I just want to be able to, like, be able to put food on the table and maybe to go out to eat so someone else can put food on the table. I'll pay them to do that. And just want a roof over my head, but would like some dimmable pot lights in that roof. And, you know, and, and I want opportunities for my kids, right? Like music, sports, and, you know, Kumon or whatever it is. Like, that's not, I mean, you know, and I just want to be able to have enough now and that so when I stop working, I still get paid as if I was working. But that's all. By any definition of anyone in the world, that's wealth. But those are just given pursuits saying, well, of course. Of course you want, you know, have a roof and a nice place and food on the table and opportunities for your kids and, you know, something left over when you're done working. That's wealth by any standard. But that's basically saying, hey, that's, that's what you want. And it's always better to have more than less. Like, nobody wants to get promoted and get paid the same or less. You know, even though we all work in situations where, hey, your job's changing and you're doing more with less, but your pay's staying the same. We all go, that doesn't make sense. Everyone, people want to move up, not down. Same with power. You'd say, oh, power, that sounds a bit ugly. I don't want to say I want that. But everyone wants more influence than they have. It's the other reason we want promotions or to move up. It's like, I want to have a voice. I want my opinions to count. I want to be heard. I don't want to be taken advantage of in relationships. I don't want to be taken advantage of by my peers. I don't want to be taken advantage of my, by my employer. Like, I, I always want to move up. We always want more power, not less power. So it's because you, you don't want to be powerless. You don't want to be voiceless. You don't want to have no influence. And so, of course, we would always move towards opportunities, unquestioningly take opportunities to have more power, even though we wouldn't use that word. And we inherently value, if say, meet someone and say, oh, what do you do? And they say, oh, I do such and such we would immediately attach a level of significance or we wouldn't use the word power, but to that if they say, I'm a CEO or I'm a this or that, suddenly that means, you know, whether we're cynical about that or not, like, well, that means you have more power, which clearly is better. And what about fame? I mean, no one talks about that. I don't want to be famous. I just want to be recognized for my work, you know? My kid's a way better singer than that kid. Why were they at the back of the line instead of the front? Like, I just want them to get noticed. Don't want to get passed over. Don't want to be ignored. How come they didn't make the team? How come I didn't make the team? How come I got benched? Right? When you say that's fame, it's like, yeah, I, I, hey, I just want to be known or noticed for what it is that I do, what it is that I'm good at. And then beauty, right? I'm down to one type of hair product, but my, now my son uses it. And I'm like, seriously, this is expensive. Like, you don't need this, you know? <laughs> I didn't, even, I didn't even put stuff in your hair when I was like, what have we created, these little monsters? Like, want to look a certain way, right? It's like, we're, this like beauty we're trying to have or, or trying to hold on to. Maybe we felt like we had it more in an earlier stage of life. And, and our, our culture is obsessed with both, and there's a fine line between health and beauty. In fact, they just kind of lump them together in Shopper's Drug Mart now, right? Health and beauty, because it's like hard to tell. It's like, hey, am I pursuing health or am I pursuing beauty, or which one is it? It's like the, my body's a temple and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, it's just because why? We think it's just like, well, that's, that's what is valuable, right? If, if I can get more beauty, I'll turn the head of the person that I want, or I'll get noticed, or all those kinds of things, or 
You know, if I had it, I want to keep it. If it's slipping away, it's starting to bother me. How do I get better? How do I get more of that? This is just the default. We, I mean, this is like unquestioned ways of living. I'm not even being critical or whatever. I'm, I'm breathing the air you are, too. That this is the default purposes in life. And there's just so many things wrong with that, one of which is they're false. Because there's someone who has way more money than you and is way less happy than you right now. Like, there are people who have all of these things. And we read the stories of their messed up lives for our own entertainment. It's like, okay, well, because I can't be wealthy and powerful, beautiful, I'll at least read magazines about people who are and have made terrible decisions with them. This doesn't actually get us to happiness and security, or the happiness is there, but then it's gone, or the security is there, but the more you have the approval and the fame of other people, the more you need to keep it to be relevant, the more you need to keep it to stay alive. So it actually doesn't provide that sense of happiness and security, but it's even more complicated for a people of faith, because oftentimes the way we're taught or how we read the scriptures is like, well, it, doesn't God want that for me? And, and some of us, many of us, have either been explicitly taught or we just kind of had this sense of like, well, if I do life the right way, God will give me those things. So if I'm finding myself in a place in life where I, where I don't have wealth, where I'm struggling to get by, where I'm losing finances, or I'm losing power, or I'm, I'm being taken advantage of by someone who has more power than I do, or I'm not noticed, I'm not recognized, I'm, you know, regarded as someone unimportant in the world, or I'm not... I don't have the friend circle I used to have. We say, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing this for me? That somehow we've equated the missing of those things with God's failure to look after us. And even when we sing songs and saying, oh my God is fighting for us and he will always come through, oftentimes we're interpreting God's work in our life through those four things. Wealth, power, fame, beauty. God, what's happening? And so even our own understanding of what it means to be happy and secure in God is somehow tied to those purposes. And interestingly, Jesus, we have four um, biographies of Jesus, four you know, accounts that in some ways are similar, in some ways are different, eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. Jesus actually came, and as he began sort of his public ministry and going around teaching everywhere, you know, we sort of know the story of his birth, and then like Dave said last week, not much after that. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene and begins to teach publicly, and he announces, actually, a statement of purpose um, that he invites everyone else to say, say and say, consider this as your purpose for living. Here's what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Sounds good, right? Like, what? That's the purpose statement? I didn't even know that had anything to do with my purpose in life. What is that about? And it actually says in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus went everywhere continually saying this. Now, I read the Gospel of Matthew when I was a kid. It was picture Bible first, and then it you know, started to use more words and complex sentences. And so I read, I've read this book I don't know how many times. For the longest time in my life, I didn't understand that what Jesus was saying was inviting me into a purposeful way of living through these words. Part of the problem that it's confusing for us is the word kingdom and the word repent. Let's just talk about that. The word kingdom, and Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven has arrived to his listeners, because that's how we understand scripture first, is understand what did they understand it to mean? What did it mean for them and what does it mean for us? That's how we need to understand scripture. 
So Jesus is announcing this to mostly a Jewish audience, and when he said the kingdom of heaven has arrived, they would have said yes, finally. This was a loaded statement by what they would have seen as a revolutionary trying to stir stuff up. Because the kingdom of heaven, other places you'll hear it read as the kingdom of God, don't think heaven as in like streets of gold someday, one day. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing to Jesus. It meant the reign or the rule of God. And according to Israel, if the reign or the rule of God was coming, that meant one thing. It meant Rome, who was the fourth nation to rule them, understand that they had been under, in a sense, slavery or occupation for over four centuries. First, Babylon had destroyed the temple torn down the walls of Jerusalem and took a whole bunch of people, all the intelligent sort of wealthy people into Babylon to indoctrinate them and basically obliterate Jewish society. That's what Babylon did, that's what you did when you conquered. And Babylon gets uh, conquered by the Persian army, then the Persians get conquered by Alexander the Great and the Greek army, and then the Romans conquer Alexander the Great and now they're under Roman occupation. And the Romans taxed them so heavily, probably they think up to 90 to 95% tax, right? I know you complain about taxes coming off your paycheck, but this was an oppressive kind of taxation system, which basically just took everything that they had of wealth. And so you'd have people who were working as slaves on farms they used to own because they couldn't afford to pay their taxes, so they had to sell their land to pay the taxes, and the Romans said, you know what, we, we, we need a... We need a chump to work this place. How about we'll pay you nothing to come back and work on the place you used to live? This was the world they lived in. Economically, they were, they were under the crushing thumb of Rome. Also, they were, you know, they talk about the Pax Romana, the, the, the Romans sort of brought peace to that area, but they brought peace through military. So every so often there would be uprisings and the military would come in. And so there were soldiers everywhere. It's like, you know, when you see pictures of uh, driving through other parts of the Middle East and it's normal for, to see people standing on the side of the road with AK-47s and this is just a normal part of their life. That's what it was. Roman guards, Roman centurions all around. This was just normally how it went. And if you stepped out of line, you would lose your life. There was no court system. And so economically, like politically, but then their religion was sort of kept at bay. They were allowed to have their synagogues and temples, but really Caesar was Lord, not Jehovah. And so they were meant to sort of like pay homage and worship Caesar. And then ethnically, they had sort of no identity. And so their hope and their belief that the prophets had said years ago was one day a king will come and will liberate them. And so here's Jesus, this person of significance who's starting to use revolutionary kind of language, uprising kind of language. He says, the kingdom of heaven, he says, has arrived, is arriving. It's happening right now. And so they would have started to feel, oh, this is good. You know, maybe they don't, maybe that wouldn't have fit in the same categories exactly as us, as wealth, power, fame, beauty, but similar things, saying you're going to get what you need. You're going to get what you've been longing for. And they said, oh, change is coming. And yet he used this annoying word in the same sentence, the word repent. Now, we have to get rid of our, this idea that he was saying, repent from your sins. That's not what this was about. There were other times Jesus talked to people about their sins and forgave them for it. That's not what's going on here. What does he mean by repent? The word repent means change your mind. You're thinking about this one way. I want you to think about it the opposite way. So he's announcing that the kingdom is coming, and at the same time he's saying, yeah, but you are thinking about it in the wrong way. It's not the kind of change that you think is coming. 
So on the one hand, they would have been really excited. At the same time, he's saying, yeah, but in order to actually experience this kingdom, you're going to have to change your mind because it's not what you think it is. So he's going everywhere announcing this, and he starts to invite people to follow him, the disciples. We know he chose 12 disciples, essentially who he was going to start this Jesus movement through. They became the first church, in a sense. They're, they're the people who built our church, let's say, right? Jesus started with them. And he gathers them in, and he brings them to this place, and he delivers in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 to 7, which I know you guys have all read ahead of time because you're all following the reading plan online, right? If you aren't, if you're late to the party, that's okay. We have a weekly blog that goes out that just says, explains a little bit, you know, I don't know about you, but when I read scripture, I need someone to help me understand it because I don't always get it. So there's a little weekly blog on the website that says, here's what you're reading, and then it gives you a little bit of scripture to read every day so that as you come into Sundays, you're going to kind of have a little sense of what this is about. So there's this longest section of teaching uh, traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7 where Jesus is starting to teach. But it's all explaining this whole thing about, well, what is this kingdom? Because the kingdom is actually this purpose that Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to live according to God's purpose. It's just not the way that you think what it is. I want you to change your mind about what you think your purpose in life is. It's the kingdom. And so he gathers them together and he begins to teach them. And in that context, he opens with what has traditionally been called the Beatitudes, which means, Beatitudes means the, the, the blessed, like how, how to be blessed. Probably the best translation of the word blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, is happy. Happy are, happy are, happy are. And so here's what Jesus says, and I'll, I'll, I'll stick in my own words in Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This is life upside down. Like Jesus clearly, when he's saying happy, cannot mean like, I got this feeling in my butt, I can't stop the That's not what he's talking about, right? That doesn't make any sense. He's saying, happy are you if you're crying? Happy are you if you're persecuted? What is he talking about? It clearly can't mean happiness in the way we think about, oh, I have a nice feeling because, you know, someone said nice, something nice to me or about this new sweater. Or, you know, like that, that, that gives us little feelings of like nice feelings and stuff. Jesus is clearly talking about something else, but he's still using the word happiness or blessedness. He's clearly meaning, hey, there is something deep and profoundly meaningful in terms of happiness, joy, peace, this internal sense of something that comes from the inside out that you can have. And he says, the ones who have it most in this upside-down kingdom that I'm talking about are the poor, the hungry, those who mourn, those who live in the midst of war, those who are being persecuted, those who are sick, those who are being marginalized, those who are being insulted, those who are being rejected. Is life upside down. This would have been the situation that his entire audience would have been living in. He was talking to the poor, to those who were hungry, to those who were marginalized, to those who were victims 
of oppression to the powerless, to the weak, to those being insulted, to those being persecuted, to those who were victims of war. And he was saying, you think that in order for you to be happy, those circumstances need to change. That's why you're excited about the kingdom that I'm announcing. But I'm also telling you, repent. You have to change your mind. You think that you need these things to change in order to experience the blessing of God. But he actually says, look, the meek, in other words, those who power down, not power up, actually inherit the earth. The ones who hunger, not just for food, but actually for deeper things, will get righteousness, they'll be filled. The ones who are peacemakers will be called children of God, like the ones who seek peace instead of seek revenge. The ones who are persecuted, they get the kingdom. The ones who are pure in heart, they get to see God. He said, you think you can't experience the blessing in the presence of God because of your circumstances, but I'm telling you, it is in these very circumstances you are the first in line to experience the blessing of God. It is life upside down. You are crying out for help because you think in these things, I can't thrive. I cannot experience blessedness because of all of this stuff that is happening circumstantially in my life. And Jesus says, no, this is the upside-down kingdom. You don't need more wealth, power, fame, beauty in order to experience fulfillment, in order to experience happiness and security. Happiness actually comes from knowing that in the middle of those things, God arrives. The irony of it, of course, was he was saying the kingdom of heaven, he was pointing to himself, is arriving. He was literally in their midst, talking to the poor and the broken and the marginalized and the weak and the powerless and the victimized. This was the upside-down kingdom that Jesus was saying. Yes, it's a kingdom, but you need to change your mind in order to receive it. See, so often our prayers are about changing these circumstances, right? Right? when we are in the middle of poverty, whether it's financially or just relationally, we feel an emptiness in our lives, poor in spirit, that's what Jesus used to describe that. Or as we're mourning because of grief, because of loss, because of difficulty, or where we are victims of someone else's decisions, someone who has more power than us in a situation, or being insulted, or being marginalized, or being in the midst of conflict, our prayers, my prayers certainly, are focused on God change this thing, get rid of this thing, heal this thing, get rid of that person, fix this thing, provide, da-da-da-da-da, because that's what I need in order to feel happy and secure. And Jesus says, no, you are actually in the prime spot when you are in the middle of these things to experience the blessing of God and the presence of God. Those things are not obstacles for you actually experiencing God. That's where he, he arrives first in the middle of hardship. It is the upside down world. The revolution God has in mind is to change our heart, not our circumstances. You get that? That's what he means by repent. Oh, there's change coming. <laughs> 
It's your mind and heart that need to think differently about what you think is going to give you happiness in life. Repent, Jesus says. This could be spoken today in our culture that is so fixed on wealth, fame, power, beauty. Saying, if I just could have a little more. Jesus says, repent. You're thinking the wrong way. That's not what's actually going to give you that sense of happiness and deep joy in your life. And if you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he actually gives examples of what the, how this works. He says, if anyone wants to sue you, okay, so someone who's going to take advantage of you, and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In other words, that was what they said was, love your neighbor, but it's okay to hate your enemy. God told them, love your neighbor, right? They said, okay, that means you can hate your enemy. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He gives three examples of the upside-down kingdom and how it just takes it and shifts it on its head. He says, if someone's trying to sue you to take your stuff, give them your stuff then what power does wealth have over you? Right? Someone's demanding something from you? Give away more. It would be like saying, man, the government takes so much in tax. I can't give any away. I don't have much left. He's saying, you know what? The government takes their tax. Let them take it. But if you choose to give, actually, you'll be free from the grip of money. See, it's the upside-down kingdom. You don't get freedom, financial freedom, by hanging on to it. You get it by letting it go. It doesn't control you anymore. What's this one mile, two mile? You know, they, it's, it's now part of our vernacular, right? Going the extra mile. Well, in Roman law, a, Rome, a Roman soldier could command a Jew or whoever they were occupying to carry their load, their military pack, for a mile. And you had to do it if you were a Jew. And so this was the powerful exploiting the powerless. And Jesus says, you know what? They can make you go the first mile, but you can choose to go the second one. And what happens to power then? Right? As the soldier says, give it back, he says, no, that's okay, I'll carry it for another mile. Who's in control now? Jesus says, see, power, it's this thing. He says, instead of powering up, choose to serve, it actually subverts the whole thing. They can make you go the first one, but you can choose to go the second out of love, and now who's in control? He says, upside-down kingdom. Then he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't know about you, but I pray against those who persecute me. Jesus says, what, pray for them. What happens when you pray for the well-being of people who are your enemies? Your heart begins to melt for them, right? Do this, right? If there's someone who's really bugging you or you feel who's really against you or you're just having a hard time, pray for them. I guarantee you the next time you see them, you feel differently from them. People who sometimes we see them and it just brings anger to our hearts, I'm telling you, if you start to pray for them, the next time you see them, something begins to melt inside you. Jesus says, see, when you're angry with those who are hurting you, all it does is keep you in prison. If you pray for them, it actually releases you. You know, like someone said, holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, right? This is the upside-down kingdom. Jesus says, that's where actually happiness comes from. I know it sounds totally bizarre, but that's why I'm calling you. Repent, change your mind, shift what you think happiness really is. It's the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. He actually starts to explain how this upside-down kingdom works. 
which is why at the end of it he says, not only will you get happiness if you get this, he says you also get security. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, in other words, Matthew 5 to 7, and puts them into practice is what, like what? This man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. All of the storms of life, all of the chaos, all of the sickness and pain and mourning, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. The fool in the Bible is not someone who's dumb. The fool is someone who lives as if there's no God. He says, don't be like someone who lives as if there's no God, who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. There will be storms in your life. And it fell with a great crash. Jesus says, not only if you take this into your life, not only will you get true happiness, you also get security. Friends, security isn't having a nest egg because it can be gone. And sometimes we find many people say they arrive at the end of their life and they have the nest egg and all they're doing is regretting what they gave up to get it. Time with family, time with people, physical health, stress, long hours, all that stuff. What did they get in the end? Jesus says, you put these words of mine into practice, this upside-down kingdom, this backwards way to live, understanding that in the middle of all of this chaos and difficulty and sickness and pain and rejection and insults and persecution, God can still arrive. Actually, you're the first in line. And if you read the Gospels, those are all the people Jesus went to, and all the religious and important wealthy people were like, hey, how come you don't care about us? He says, because these are the people who will experience my kingdom first. And he says, you get that into your life, not only do you find true happiness, in the end, your house will stand. Repent, change your mind. This isn't intuitive. Nothing in culture makes you think this way. Nothing in that culture made them think that way. Nothing's changed. That's why Jesus says, it's coming, but you've got to change your mind to receive it. And so I have two questions for you just as we close. You know, when Jesus invited people to follow him, oftentimes it meant they needed to unfollow something else. So I have a question for you. For some of you, who or what did you need to unfollow so you can follow Jesus more? It may just mean you just need to stop reading People magazine. I know, that's very crazy talk. Like little things, right, that seed this sort of sense of what's beautiful, what's important, what's valuable, what I want in my life. For some of you, you just need to stop checking your, like, retirement savings more. Just unfollow this way of saying this is where hope is found. For some of you, there may be people in your life, not everybody, but maybe people in your life who, you know, their whole life is bent on wealth, power, fame, beauty, and they have a little too much influence in your life. You kind of follow them a bit too much. Don't unfriend them, but just unfollow their way of thinking. Maybe you need a little less of their influence in your life and a little more of the words of Jesus. And that may mean spending more time with people who are following Jesus. It may mean just carving out time to actually read these words that Jesus says, if you take them into your life, they'll give you a rock to stand on. And then for others of us who maybe say, yeah, I'm, I am right there right now. I'm feeling poor in spirit, empty, I'm mourning. I'm feeling attacked, insulted. I'm in the middle of chaos. I'm in the middle of conflict. I'm facing rejection, isolation. Maybe your prayer is, hey, Jesus, can you change my heart even if you don't change my circumstances? 
right? Can you do something in me that even if nothing else out there changes, I begin to see all of this differently. I begin to realize, wow, you're right in the middle of this with me. I don't know about you, friends, but I have felt, and I know there are people in this congregation and the congregation of Vaughn who could put their hand up and say, you know what, this is true. Things I never wanted to happen, things I hoped I'd never go through, in the middle of them is actually where I found God more profoundly than I ever have in my life. And I'm not just throwing that out there saying it's a formula or whatever. It's a hard road. Jesus was not just saying, oh, here's, here's some pithy words to live by. This upside-down way of thinking. And yet for some of us, maybe, as we, maybe we can take a break from praying for the circumstances to change and start saying, Jesus, in the middle of this, as long as this season goes, change my heart. Let me come out of this a new person. You can still pray for your circumstances to change. Jesus says that. God is a good father. Ask him for what you need. But pray more for your heart to change because if you come out a different person, your world will change, even if nothing circumstantially has changed at all. Now, this is such a bold thing, right, to ask, and even Jesus is pretty gutsy to even say this to us. How do we know it's true? Because he went and lived it. He didn't just tell us this stuff. Jesus went, left his job, became poor. He endured suffering, rejection, even from his family, even from his brothers, hardship, persecution, false accusation, and eventually death. But God raised him from the dead. And the scriptures say Jesus didn't do that as a martyr. He did it because he knew one day God would raise him from the dead. And so true happiness and security were found in trusting God through the storms that came in his life. He isn't someone who just told us about it. He's someone who actually went and did it.